0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: The young, shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality, and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun.
2: Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community Or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quaker's Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends.
0: Today we're talking with Robert Howell. Robert's primary interest is working to understand the links between ecological degradation and financial systems and ethics. And you can podcast this by going to OAR.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. Robert's worked in economics and management and administration for most of his life and has got interested, very interested in environmental issues having to do with of economics and ethics. Could you briefly talk about what was the influence of your working with two think tanks, the North American Quaker Institute for the Future and the New Zealand-based sustainable ATRO, starting with the Quaker think tank. It's unusual for Quakers to have think tanks, so maybe you go talk
2: about that. Sure. Um, I had, uh, prior to that, my, my experience was involved in a, a variety of management and planning positions and also uh, university teaching and consulting. Um, and it was really um, the – both of those think tanks were multidisciplinary, and they brought together a variety of scientists and lawyers, ecologists, um, people interested in the environment and related issues. And I I brought to that a public policy perspective and an ethical perspective. Um, And I learnt a lot about uh, the state of the environment, its degradation, how it linked to the economy, the the fact that the the type of economy we have is causing that. And it caused me to go back and do a lot of my uh, rereading reading of, of ethics when I did a philosophy degree many years ago. And both of those think tanks, one based in New Zealand and one based in North America, <clears throat> um, prompted me to actually see the, the connections between e- the kind of economy we have, uh, the ethics that underline it, uh, and the effect on degradation of, of the world. Those were the major things, and the need when addressing this to work collectively uh, with a variety of disciplines. All
0: right. Could you talk about the um, new flagship UN report on climate change, which came out uh, a week ago, Monday? On the harmful effects of carbon emissions, and the uh, UN Secretary's uh, warning to us that um, he insisted unless governments act everywhere, we are human history is on a fast track to disaster.
2: The UN General Secretary uh, was picking up on an ICS. IPCC report, which basically said that the world needs to peak by 2025 uh, with its carbon emissions and then start to reduce from that date, um, including both methane and carbon dioxide. Um, That's three years away uh, where the world is not going to make that uh, target. Um, The report indicated that uh, if we didn't turn this around, we would reach 1.5 in the early 2030s and 2 degrees in the early 2040s. And we're on course uh, because we can't reach the 1.5 target. Um, It's just unrealistic to think we're going to turn it around in three years we're on course to, to go to two degrees plus, and that will have major effects on terms of the way we live, the economics. Um, there will be considerably greater uh, numbers of very extreme weather events causing major, major disaster. So we really need to now think as a New Zealand, um, as New Zealanders, we need to think about the fact that those that scenario is likely and what we can do in order to be able to deal with its worst effects.
0: Okay, how would you suggest we in the New Zealand government need to change ethical and social views in order to deal with the reality of climate change and adaption? And what could we learn from our collective response to the COVID pandemic?
2: Uh, Well, let me take the COVID thing first. Um, I think that that COVID has a number of lessons that uh, are useful for considering the wider ecological issue. Um, At New Zealand, our economy had an over-reliance on overseas tourism. We had an over-reliance on the use of overseas workers. it showed that our supply chains, uh, particularly from our overseas supply chains, are very vulnerable, leading to shortages of product and delays in their arriving, and the cost went up. It showed that uh, our work patterns of, of having to go into the centre city to, to work um, is, is not sacrosanct. There are a variety of other flexible ways of working that that we could use. Um, It also showed, I think, that the the people in our community who we most rely on for the basic services um, to keep the economy going, such as nurses, are by and large not paid very well. Uh, So the people who are really essential, the essential workers, are the people who, who we don't remunerate properly. Um, it showed, I think, in the second COVID. I think the first COVID example um, was was outstanding and world class. And a number of people uh, lived because of the way the government did that. Yeah, the, the death rate during that first COVID, I think, was the best in the world. The second COVID, uh, which was uh, much more contagious, Uh, the government didn't respond as well as it should have done. Um, It didn't really act with kindness, uh, didn't have the flexibility um, and people lost lost a bit of confidence in the process and it showed I think that the government departments really are not as nimble as they should be. Uh, The uh, The way in which the responses took place increased the gap between rich and poor, Um, but the last thing I think is that uh, we had a reaction, uh, particularly more virulent during the second COVID, about the cry for freedom, Uh, and various evangelical churches and various other groups started uh, trumpeting the need to respect freedom. In actual fact, that was a license to kill. Um, And if you just unfettered freedom by itself does not recognize that with freedom goes responsibilities to look for the interests of the wider community. And I think that's that's going to be an important lesson going forward um, in anticipating that. There are going to be people who simply cannot understand the science of climate change, and will latch on to all kinds of other stories. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to have a united uh, New Zealand response to climate. So that's the, <clears throat> that's the COVID um, the COVID lessons. Um, I think in terms of um, how the how the government is going to adapt? They have put out an ad- adaptation plan, but I think there are some um, there are some holes in that. Could um, you talk about the holes? Well, sure. <laughs> um, well, the first thing is that I think the way they've defined risk um, it, it doesn't identify all the significant risks that are going to, that we're going to face. Uh, for example, it doesn't recognize that um, there are <clears throat> the, the, the transition to renewable energy cannot, in time and in quantity, replace the existing fossil fuel energy. So as we shift to renewable energy and non-polluting forms of energy, the amount of energy that is available is not the same as the energy we're using at the moment. So we're going to have to live with less energy. That is absent from the adaptation plan. I think that uh, it doesn't really take into account the fact that as as I mentioned, we've got 1.5 built into um, the world's economy and that's going to increase and bring a lot of volatility to the international economy. Um, And we're not going to be able to sell our products just in the way we assumed and we're not going to be able to buy products and services from overseas in the way. So there's that whole issue about the Effect of um, depressions and other forms of economic recession is not really well built in. It omits agriculture um, and um, the issues associated with that. So those are those are the, the risks and the gaps that I think that we have in the draft adaptation plan that was recently put out for consultation.
0: Are you surprised that some of the people who put this forward didn't put a stronger plan? I mean, are you a bit surprised at the Green Party and the leaders of the Green Party?
2: Uh, Well, the Green Party, um, I think, has been, uh, as a whole, fairly critical, but James Shaw has been placed in the difficult situation of (laughs) trying to work through something that, Um, he may personally not be fully happy with, but he's part of um, a team with other politicians and other actors in the game where he has to um, put his personal stuff to one side.
0: What do you think about the fact that um, methane gas and other agricultural um, problems actually contribute quite a lot to greenhouse gases and climate change? And don't we still have to try to mitigate even though we're not going to make it?
2: Well, yes. I mean, <clears throat> uh, adaptation by itself is is not the answer. We really need to mitigate. And in that respect, I think that the, um, the adaptation plan misses a number of uh, opportunities for Improving the way in which we can mitigate. Um, For example, um, the financial sector in the adaptation plan plan basically talks about the 100 million that has been put up by the government to establish a green fund. But it doesn't recognise that the New Zealand Super Fund, which has 55 million, the ACC, which has fifty million, uh, the Kiwi Sabre Scheme funds have collectively uh, about eighty-one million, and all of those, and uh, nearly all of those, in some form or other, are, are investing in fossil fuel activity in some way or other. Um, the um, there was a study done by Banktrack. Uh, which showed that since COP, that's five or six years ago, um, about $3.4 trillion had been invested in fossil fuels by 60 banks. Now, if you go through the investment patterns of the Superfund, the ACC, uh, Kiwi Savers, the majority of them, of, the, of them are involved in at least one of those 60, 60 banks. So when the, the Superfund talks about investing in uh, the potential of investing in wind farms off the Taranaki coast, but is invested in banks that invest in fossil fuels, it really is quite stupid. Um, so there's an inconsistency uh, in in terms of what the government is is doing in terms of its crown financial institutions and its KiwiSaver funds that are uh, inconsistent. and and that's one example of the lack of government coordination in terms of its its response. It could it could do that. Uh, that's what I consider low hanging fruit.
0: Isn't that so, one of the uh,
2: consistencies of the economic
0: system to make a profit above everything else? Aren't, they, aren't these financial institutions doing what they traditionally do, putting?
2: Profit before ethics. Um, well, yes, of course. Um, they've uh, the, in order in order to be able to survive, they have to make profit. But it's the way they make the profit. You can actually make profit uh, in a um, yeah. ecologically consistent kind of way. Um, sure, but in the short uh, run, you make might make slightly.
0: You might make profit, but in the short run you might make slightly less profit. In the long run, you might be much better off. But uh, economics doesn't
2: usually look at the long run. Um no, that's true. The the, the New Zealand Superfund has taken in in some respects has taken um a long-term view. Um but if you look at at some of the funds, they they also do take a, lot, a longer term view. But the studies that have shown uh, studies have shown that if you invest in a ethically responsible kind of way, you don't necessarily have to com- compromise your um, you don't necessarily have to compromise in what you uh, want in terms of returns. So so. Uh, Investing ethically and behaving ethically is not inconsistent with um, being able to run successful businesses. Can if I just you, come sure, just, can I
0: this, just? come yeah. back
2: to another point that that uh, um, you raised? You, you talked about the adequacy of the government's adaptation plan. Um, I think that that um, if you look at um uh, the range of government activities, both in its departments and its agencies, and then its uh the companies that it invests in, partly like meridian energy and if you look at um uh auckland airport um If you look at the whole range of those and you go and investigate and and look at what their codes of conduct are, then in a number of cases, they're really not consistent with an economy which is based on a human-human as well as a human-earth ethic. By that, I mean uh, the human-human is how the responsibility that humans, we have to look after other humans and responsibilities that we have to look after the environment. Auckland Airport, for example, in its code of conduct, only mentions the former, the human-human relationship. It doesn't mention that the board members have a responsibility as part of the ethics of the company to look after caring for the environment. Doesn't this go back to? So with- sorry, can I can I just say yeah. that that if you look at. Uh, uh, the range of the uh, activities of government, what I would be wanting to suggest as a way of coordinating them is to ensure that they all have codes of conduct that uh, integrate the ethics of a, a full comprehensive ethical statement about their responsibilities towards other people and to the planet and make that a foundation, charter or uh, a principle underlying their code of conduct, and then ask them to get to get them to report on that, and that would enable uh, a much more focused approach in terms of government activity that really is absent from the adaptation plan. Okay,
0: doesn't all this in a way go back to the nineteen nineties when these uh, these, these government Departments were semi-privatized, made into state state commercial industries, and put where they put profit really at the basis of it, ahead of everything else. And now, and also, I wonder if we didn't make our economy and our social system less resolute because there was less diversity in the economy, less diversity. In who we traded with, um, though we've had this for some time. If you look at, uh, we started out selling wool, and then we went to um, uh, lamb, and we was depending on trading. Usually, there were one or two um, great countries, and trading in in one product. So, actually, in the didn't we make ourselves? Less diverse, less resolute in recent history.
2: Well, I I would say that the uh, the nomics philosophy um, uh, linked to the Chicago School was basically to say that you minimize the role of government in the provision of goods and services and rely on the market. So you downsize government and you give place to the market. Well. That now has been shown to be uh, a non-workable philosophy, and uh, the, the recent examples of of COVID show that um, the COVID response was not the the market could not provide that kind of integrated response. It was a government response, and uh, governments around the world responded accordingly. It was not a market-driven or market-led thing. And we found during the COVID that the downsizing of uh, government services really meant that the uh, ability of those services to respond to COVID was was particularly poor. The health service is an ideal example. It had been run down under the National Party to such an extent that uh, the the response uh, in terms of really Dealing with the, um, the extent of COVID was uh, very difficult. Shortage of hospital beds, shortage of nurses, inadequate uh, staffing in a whole variety of ways. It had been starved of funds for such a long time. And if you want to, get, that is in itself uh, a sufficient argument to show that the, the, the whole idea of Roger where the market drives the provision of goods and services is simply inadequate. That that government has, it's not to say that there's not a role for um, for the market and the private sector, but government has uh, a much more significant role under, than, than is recognised by that sort of philosophy.
0: It's not either or, is it? Because if you notice Scandinavian countries like Denmark and also Germany have a much more uh, government have a much bigger role, but also private enterprise still has a major role. It's not oh, either yes. or. I mean, the thing is that Roger Douglas said it was either or you just you get away with government as much as possible. And any collective response.
2: Um except, well well except military yeah. and security. Yeah, well it would I would say it was a minimized role for government. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not going back for a full uh, communist measures. sort of response. I don't think that's appropriate.
0: But uh, countries that have a mixed economy have done better.
2: Um, well, it's it's the balance of the mix and the and yeah. the role you see, um, and it's it's complicated you could say that the United States economy is a mixed economy. Um, I've heard it said that um, the United States system, um, the democratic system is the best system that money could buy. And uh, as a result of that, uh, it's it's very inadequate in terms of its government response. Um, the... Um doesn't agriculture itself have to change a lot? Well, I think, I think the um, this really is... It, it wasn't mentioned in the adaptation plan, um, but um, the government has taken a, uh, the tactic of trying to... Work with the agricultural sector to be able to come forward with a system that that enables the farmers, excuse me, enables the farmers to be comfortable with whatever action needs to be taken about uh, climate um, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I must say that it's I believe that that's a very inadequate response um it only deals with uh, 4 to 5% of emissions uh it really doesn't take into account that the kind of e- economy that uh, agricultural economy that we have in the moment is open to a whole variety of risks that that farmers don't recognize um, the, um i must say that there are there are some good farmers and then there are some bad farmers um Uh, There are a number of farmers who are doing some really good stuff in terms of uh, uh, using their uh, farms and their uh, horticultural and um, other systems to actually be responsible. But at the moment, uh, we haven't really, as New Zealand, really faced up to the need to really deal with agriculture and, um, and, and get it under... Proper control. There's there's plenty of examples of farms that uh, that reduce the number of cows, for example, um, and diversify some aspects of their activity and becoming more profitable. So at the moment, there's pl- pretty clear evidence that that New Zealand dairy system is overstocked, uh, and if you downsize, it doesn't necessarily mean that you become less profitable. In fact, the reverse. Um, and it, and you can have much better outcomes for the environment as a result of that. So the, there are a number of farmers who don't haven't taken that on, and it comes back to the the point I raised earlier about one of the lessons um, about the uh, COVID, and that is that a number of people were saying we need freedom, uh, and they interpret that that as freedom for them to carry around. Um, COVID, uh, to be COVID uh, uh, affected and to infect other people. They had the right to do that. Well, I don't, that in, in my opinion means license to kill. And the problem is that if you tried to talk to them about the science of vaccination, uh, it just didn't go in. Uh, there are a number of farmers in a similar situation where you, you try and talk about the science and they just simply do not respond. So New Zealand has to come, I think, will be facing a decision as to say, at some stage or other, uh, we're going to have to deal with the fact that uh, an anti-science, unscientific response to climate change needs to be uh, uh, dealt with by, by the country facing up to a scientific answer. and. Recognizing that not everybody is going to be able to uh, accept that. Um, okay,
0: I'm the, going to play a piece of music and then we'll come back to this.
2: Thank you.
1: A crack fills the earth like a single rifle shot. No one's there to hear The beginning of the end of the world A crack spreads through ice just like an axe through dry wood It opens up a chasm Between what is happening And what
3: should it. Cause if the ice off will tumble Into the warming sea And the oceans, they may rise Until they cover the dreams of you and me Uh And no machines on Earth will stop it No cunning of the scientists Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface The greenhouse is calling greenhouse is warming the Earth has given notice. She has given her final warning.
1: One thing we must do is to support our politicians whenever they take steps to remedy this situation. the use of carbon, we must do what must be done And meet the needs of this growing world by harvesting the wind
3: and the sun Because if the ice shelf will we'll tumble into the warming sea And the oceans, they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me Uh And no machines on Earth will stop it No cunning of the scientists Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface Greenhouse is calling, greenhouse is warming The Earth has given notice, she has given her final warning Her final warning Cause if the ice shop will tumble Into the warming sea And the oceans they may rise Until they cover the dreams of you and me Uh And no machines on earth will stop it No cunning of the scientists Oceanians on the planet's warming surface, the greenhouse is calling. The greenhouse is warming. The Earth has given notice. She has given her final warning. Her final warning.
1: earth is like a single rifle shot no one's there to hear the beginning of the end of the world
0: well friends that was simon kerr and final warning and we're talking with robert how on the the ethics and economics of adoption and climate change. We're talking about farmers. Have, have a lot of farmers been locked into um, their situation with Fonterra, where they need to produce more, more profit, and they think the way to do that is have to produce more and more milk powder. And there, many of them are in debt considerably. Is this something the the government needs to not only be aware of but provide a way out that um, gives us farmers some hope and security, but also changes the way we do agriculture.
2: What? So, what do you want me to do? What was sh- what we should do about Fonterra? What do we do?
0: Yeah, what do we do about? Voluntary and the debt that the these farmers have gone into and the, and the feeling that they're locked
2: into it uh, well they don't necessarily have to be locked into it um, and and i and there are a number of uh, farmers who I think are are being quite responsible in terms of the way they use their resources they do care for the land and they do care for their people they uh, they do that in a responsible kind of way yeah. that's the caring for the earth and caring for the people ethic. Uh, so you can do that within the, the Fonterra scheme, I believe. Um, but I, uh, there's a, um, a retired professor from Lincoln College, and I've just forgotten his name, who's written extensively about the strategies of um, Fonterra. And it's not an area in which I have expertise, so I defer to people like him. But there are, I think, he he's suggesting that some of the strategic uh, plans that Fonterra have adopted over the years have not been satisfactory. Um, so I def- defer to him. All right now, I would I would, I would say on? that um, in 2020, the government produced a a document called Fit for a Better World. And what they were talking about was over a 10-year period that a $44 billion could be added to the export returns from the fibre and food sector. Uh, they talked about um, uh, an additional $2.6 billion from horticulture billion from forestry, 2.2 billion from seafood. Dairy, they only predicted 0.9 billion, and meat and wool, 1.2 billion. Um, What this is suggesting is that uh, sheep and beef um, and dairy are not going to be the kind of economic salvation that um, some farmers claim. Uh, and so I, I think that the, the landscape is changing with regard to the range of horticultural and agricultural activity that is taking place, and they, we're, we're not going to be quite so dependent on dairy. However, um, these are projections about what is possible, and they're dependent on a, a number of things that um, still have to be established. But I think that document is worth looking at.
0: Have we really learned from COVID? I mean, um, the the opposition political parties, um, the main opposition political parties, are talking about cutting taxes and rolling back on things the government's done. Is that a, a sign of uh, learning about the, the needs of, the government, and the ability to um, handle
2: emergencies when they're bound to come? Um, well, I must say that the uh, the leader of the opposition, uh, Luxton, uh, was a former CEO of uh, Air New Zealand. And Air New Zealand had a environmental committee that was headed up by Jonathan Porritt. And Jonathan Porritt is a very famous and well-established uh, environmental expert based in Britain. And uh, and so Luxton would have known about the science from, from him and that committee. Uh, Damien Salmon was also, I think, a member of that committee. So he, he would be aware of... The difficulties that the airlines have at the moment—they have about four to five percent contribution to the um, to climate uh, warming world, and that's not going to be uh, easily dealt with. And he must know that, and he must be aware of the fact that the one point five is not really going to be um, achievable. So he's committed to. Uh, getting to a zero uh, emissions target by 2050, but if the IPCC report is taken into account, that's going to be too little, too late. So he must he must know that, and um, he's he's commit he's committed to the 2050 target, but he won't go beyond that, which I think is not responsible. He um, he's indicated that he's not going to have. Uh, he's not going to come in and, and radically change uh, what uh, the government has done over the last few years in terms of its existing agencies and departments and so on. But um, in terms of tax, well, uh, um, I'm not sure where he actually stands on that.
0: Publicly, he's talked about cutting taxes.
2: He has talked about it, has he?
0: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, he's promised to cut taxes.
2: Yeah, well, I just, I mean, I just think that's irresponsible. Um, I just, I think, and it's irresponsible uh, for uh, this reason, and that is that if you look at the ecological footprint of rich people as opposed to poor people, the ecological footprint of rich people is far greater than poor people if we're going to have any chance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions we really need need to start with the people who make the biggest contribution and those are wealthy people and they fly around in their private jets and they have uh, as the russian oligarchs have shown us they have magnificent uh, expensive yachts that that they sail around the mediterranean and so forth um completely irresponsible and as a world we we need we're going to need to tackle that gap between the rich and the poor um, and take that seriously and i think that's um it's going to be difficult um and in new zealand i think that it will uh the 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 gap between rich and poor, I think, will will, will grow and become uh, much more difficult to get a unified response to New Zealand's problems.
0: Isn't this one of the problems with America's political system, with the, the Americans? Yeah, they the gap is huge between the rich and poor. Sure, and uh, I said, and that, people see it growing, and people don't. And poor people don't have a irrational response. A lot of people, have, they are angry, but they don't know who they're angry at. But they're angry because of the inequality, partially. Well, I
2: think that's that's true. Um, but as I said earlier, American democracy is the best system. you can that buy. Money. Yes. And that's because the rich people have considerable... Uh, investments in making sure that the politicians that do get elected protect them um, and the gun lobby uh, debate that's occurring again in the United States is a good example of that because the gun lobby have uh, if if they uh, the, the senators and the um, representatives over there that get supported by gun money uh, if they don't deliver then the gun lobby will just go and ensure that the, they don't get re-elected. What I'm power.
0: suggesting is that growing inequality makes democracy more difficult. I agree. And that um, to, to get a united response to climate adaptation, to mitigation, to the things that we're facing, we need uh, people to experience increasing equality, not increasing inequality, and to believe that the government is trying to be fair to the majority of people to to particularly the people with the bottom
2: well i think I think that's true it's unfortunate that jacinda uh, eliminated the possibility of a um of a tax on rich people, uh, that's off her agenda at the moment. Um, David Parker is is doing some work to try and show exactly how extensive the tax system works in favour of the rich, and I think when that happens, uh, a lot of New Zealanders will be uh, surprised and annoyed, and it may it may help, but I, I think that. Um, Part of the scenario, the the storytelling that needs to occur on how to reduce emissions uh, needs to deal with the fact that, the, that the, the imbalance between rich and poor people in terms of carbon emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And um, you know, if you look at somebody like Bill Gates uh, and compare his <coughs> carbon emissions with somebody... A peasant in and farmer in Tanzania—it's something like tens of thousands different, uh, difference—and um, so rich people think that they can buy their way out of uh, the the climate warming world, and it's simply not going to happen. The um,
0: idea that why do you think some uh, coal and oil companies have actually promoted and invested in recycling and reducing energy use on a personal basis. Do you think that do you think we put that we ought to have put more emphasis on government and corporate action to reduce climate change? I've often wondered if, if everybody who recycled, everybody who um, tried to take the bus, which are good things and it makes you honest, but if everybody that did that put a lot of effort into uh, political and social issues around climate change and around economics, would that have been more effective?
2: Um... <laughs> I guess the one response is to say, what can we do as individuals? But before I do that, I think that I just need to uh, talk about the way in which we invest, um, because at the moment the way we invest is not ethical, uh, and there are four steps about investing ethically. First of all, you need to define values, and that needs to include both human, human and human earth responsibilities. So that is a statement in terms of uh, whether the fund that you're going to invest in has a uh, code of conduct or a commitment of an ethical statement that deals with that. Then the second step is decide what you're going to divest, that is, what you're not going to invest in. now, if you look at what the government has done at the moment in terms of uh, the six default Kiwi Savers, they have said we, they should not in, invest in companies that uh, produce fossil fuels. And secondly, they should not invest in illegal weapons. Okay? That ignores the fact that they, in, that they are investing in banks that invest in fossil fuels. But it also ignores the whole area of human rights and uh, worker protection. So um, that way in which uh, you're divesting uh, is simply not is not adequate with a whole series of other things that the government stands up for. However, regardless of whether you divest, um, and, to, and to some extent it's, it's a technical question because you could Invest A lot of funds overseas invest, divest a lot, and some invest not very much, and they don't invest not very much in order to be able to engage. And there are some very good examples of shareholder activism where engagement has brought about uh, companies changing their behaviour. And the fourth step is actually then expecting uh, the fund to report on what it's doing. So, in terms of individual, where do you want to invest your money, or where do you want the government to invest its money? It should follow that pattern of uh, a clear statement of its values, whether it's going to what it's going to divest of, uh, how it's going to engage, and the results of all that activity. Um, if so, the
0: government followed those leads, with that would it not encourage? Um, banks and individuals to take more confident of those steps?
2: Well, I would hope so. Um, The government can take a lead. At the moment, the Crown financial institutions and the KiwiSaver funds don't have a clear uh, statement of what it is to invest ethically. So they don't have a commitment to invest to care for people and the planet. Um, and they have an inconsistent um, uh, divestment pattern and they don't engage very well and they don't report very well. Um, So the the model that um, the the examples that the government could have are not simply being followed. Could I I say that um, in terms of how how individuals could respond to uh, the climate warming scenarios and the 1.5 and so forth. I I think I would encourage everybody to do an ecological footprint, an individual ecological footprint. Uh, There are a number of uh, organisations that enable you to do this, and it's not too hard. Um, And it tells you, if you do that, it, it enables you to identify your current usage of resources and how they fit in with um, the ecological footprint that you have at the moment. The world is uh, something like 1.6 above the resources that are available to you. So we're overusing our resources. I think the ecological footprint is uh, 1.7 for New Zealand. So we're, we're living beyond our means. How do you, then start to live within your means. Do the ecological footprint. The ecological footprint, however, does not include investment patterns, and that's why I talked earlier that needs to be dealt with. Then there are a whole series of things like uh, the the food we eat, um, uh, the clothes we wear, um, the way we um, uh, the way we enjoy uh, and carry out recreational activities. There's a whole series of things that we can look at. I would encourage people to um, let, eat less meat. We are personally moving to a more flexi um, uh, diet in terms of eating. They, the number of people who have become uh, non-meat eat uh, meat eaters in New Zealand has been rising steadily over the last couple of decades or so. Um, so we can, we can look at the way in which we, we eat. But l- longer term, I think that the government should actually produce a food plan. This is another uh, significant gap in its adaptation draft, draft adaptation, is that New Zealand needs a food plan. And it's not just the food we grow, but it's the food we bring from overseas. That's not part of it. And we need to... Uh, as a as a nation, start looking at food security in a way that we haven't done before.
0: Okay, we've got a, just a few more minutes. Can you talk about what what your realistic hopes are?
2: Talk about my what? Sorry. Realistic hopes for the future. Um well it's it's very easy to get depressed about about the scenarios there are uh, there are some people um, um some philosophers who have talked about the demise of the species and a number of other ecologists have talked about longer term uh humans living on a few humans living on the north and the south pole or what's left of it um But I I do think that um, uh, it's not just a question of adapting. We still need to look at mitigation. And and there's a lot that we can do. I mean, for example, the the way we invest is what I consider to be low-hanging fruit. Uh, There are some things that we can't change overseas. Um, But if we we still continue to uh, try and deal with the major significant factors about moving away from a fossil fuel economy and an industrialised agricultural system to a much more caring system that lives within the ability of the earth to support human life, we still need to work for that. And uh, there are a number of people who I think we can look to for models and patterns for that.
0: Okay, thanks a lot for your um, concern and expression of the thing, some of the things we need to do. And I think what you've said throughout, it actually does engender hope as well as some anxiety.
2: So <laughs> thanks a lot, Robert. Thanks for the opportunity, Marvin.
0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.